How many of you students know what it's like to come home from maybe school or work and you're so ravenous, you're so hungry, you, you just start eating all kinds of things that don't require any preparation while you're preparing food. It's like food inception. It's like, I am so hungry, I gotta eat something right now, but I'm gonna make something and then eat while I make. It's just this wild cornucopia of things that don't normally go together. There's a tangerine, and here's some grapes, and some cookies, and some bread, and also a piece of cheese, and salami, and oh look, there's a leftover chicken wing. And you just, you just put it all together because you're so hungry, just to tie you over. How many of you adults do the same thing? Yeah, exactly, see all the, I didn't even ask you to raise your hands. Thank you for your participation. Uh, this, 100% agreement that this is what we do. We're just so hungry. Um, we, we need things to tie us over. That's the, the phrase we use, right? I just need something to tie me over. Eating on my way to eating. The human soul was created to be filled and satisfied by the life of God. And the original sin in Genesis chapter 3 separated us from God. But that separation from God, that rejection of God, never put an end to our need for worship, which has resulted in this insatiable soul hunger, like this constant chronic kind of craving, the need to find things in life to tie us over. Uh, because there's this constant nagging desire to be satisfied in a way that this just life itself seems to evade us. And so the scriptures teach that the human soul does have this insatiable hunger, but we're not necessarily conscious of it. In fact, we are quite good at finding endless ways of distracting ourselves from our soul hunger. And in the same way that we kind of come home ravenous looking to be filled, we're very good at finding things uh, in life to tie our souls over uh, so that we don't actually feel that we're hungry. Uh, and yet we are. And so uh, as we come to God's word today, we're going to go to John chapter 6. And today's reading is from John chapter 6, 22 to 51, where Jesus makes a very famous claim. And he says, I am the bread of life. And over the next seven weeks, we're going to look at the seven I am statements Jesus made through the Gospel of John, where he says, I am. And uh, last week, we looked at the first time that God introduced himself as the great I am in Exodus chapter 3. And that's very in intentional how all of those things connect. And so uh, before we... Uh, Go to this text and I read John 6. I'm going to start reading in verse 22 in a minute. I just want to set this up because we're kind of coming in the middle of an account. Jesus just fed 5,000 people and he fed them with bread. Bread is this massive theme throughout scripture. I mean, it's, a, it's incredible. God is a total foodie. So Jesus feeds 5,000 people, does this incredible miracle. And uh, it's this theme of filling hunger. And Jesus is like very pointedly speaking to the human condition and it's in the midst of all of this where he's d discussing the hunger of the soul where he says i am the bread of life and he's boldly claiming that he has come that he is god and he has come to satisfy our hunger in a very ultimate way john chapter 6 starting in verse 22 and on the next day the crowd that remained on the other side of the sea saw that there had been only one boat there and that jesus did not enter the boat with his disciples but that his disciples had gone away alone. And there were other boats from Tiberias that came near the place where they had eaten the bread after the Lord had given thanks. And so when the crowd saw that Jesus was not there, nor his disciples, they themselves got into boats, and they went to Capernaum seeking Jesus. And when they found him on the other side of the sea, they said to him, Rabbi, 
When did you come here? And Jesus answered them, Truly, truly, I say to you, you're seeking me, but not because you saw the signs, because you ate your fill of the loaves. Do not work for the food that perishes, but for the food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give to you. For on him God the Father has set a seal. And then they said to him, What must we do to be doing the works of God? And Jesus answered them, This is the work of God, that you believe in him whom he has sent. So they said to him, Then what sign do you do that we may see and believe you? And what works do you perform? Our fathers ate manna in the wilderness, as it's written. He gave them bread from heaven to eat. And Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, that it was not Moses who gave you the bread from heaven, but my Father gives you the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives his life to the world. And they said to him, Sir, give us this bread always. And Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. But I say to you that you have seen me, and yet you do not believe. All that the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me I will never cast out. For I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me, but raise it up on the last day. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him should have eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. And so the Jews grumbled about him because he said, I'm the bread that came down from heaven. And they said, is this not Jesus, the son of Joseph, whose father and mother we know? How does he now say, I've come down from heaven? And Jesus answered them, do not grumble among yourselves. No one can come to me unless the father who sent me draws him. And I will raise him up on the last day. It is written in the prophets, and they will all be taught by God. Everyone who has heard me and learned from the father comes to me. Not that anyone has seen the father, except he who is from God. And he has seen the Father. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes has eternal life. I am the bread of life. Your fathers ate the man in the wilderness and they died. This is the bread that comes down from heaven so that one may eat of it and not die. I am the living bread that comes down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. But the bread that I will give uh, for the life of the world is my flesh. This is God's word. Now, There was a man named Charles Taylor, and he was a philosopher, and he wrote a book called How to Be Secular. And then another philosopher, uh, the professor at Calvin College, his name is James Smith, he, he, he dumbed the book down so guys like me could understand it. And I just started reading it, and he made this phrase that gets, I think, at the, at the heart of, of this hunger of the soul and this need to b- believe in Jesus and the wrestling with it. And, he, and this is how Charles Taylor kind of described the human condition. He said, we are haunted by occasional temptations to believe in the divine. He said, we are haunted by, we don't want to, we want to be God, but every once in a while there is this nagging, haunting to believe in this divine. This hunger, this drive, and, uh, and Jesus comes and he makes this great bold claim. He says, I'm going to come and I'm going to quench all your hunger, I'm going to quench all your thirst. Here's today's sermon in a sentence. Jesus is the bread of life who satisfies the chronic hunger of the soul. Now, as we look at this text, and we are going to unpack it this morning, I hope that your hearts are really encouraged. In verse 26, 
this whole thing begins with Jesus um, confronting the crowd. Big, massive crowds looking for Jesus. And, and the first thing Jesus does is he confronts them. The first thing he does is he says, you're not really seeking me. You like the bread that I fed you with. Which, I mean, who can blame him? You know, bread is fantastic. And, I mean, if, if there was a guy who could just manifest bread from nothing, I mean, who wouldn't follow that guy? Bread is, bread is a wonderful thing. And so they're following Jesus, and Jesus says, you're, you're actually not after God. You're only interested in what you think God will give you. And I think that's a picture of the human condition. And that's where Jesus goes right away, this, this kind of confronting moment. You've had your fill of the loaves. And so the reason why this is important, I, I think, is because there's a disconnect between uh, their motivation and Jesus' vocation. Jesus' vocation, he's like, here's what I came to do. Here's my job. Here's what the Father has called me to do. I have a, voc- a very specific vocation. And you have a very interesting motivation, and they don't match. I've come to satisfy your soul, but you're really only interested in what you think I'm going to give you. You see this disconnect? You think as North Americans we can understand this because it's the prevailing frustrating frustration with God in our culture, right? If you talk to somebody who's frustrated with God or they, they, they left the faith or they had some sort of a religious upbringing and now they're struggling to believe, a lot of times it comes down to God didn't give me the loaves that I wanted, so I'm out. And so Jesus starts there. It's an interesting confrontation that he makes. And uh, we all know that Jesus was born in Bethlehem, and Bethlehem is a Hebrew word which means house of bread. So this massive theme of bread in Jesus' life is uh, it's, it's striking. And in verse 31 and 32, Jesus contrasts himself with the bread in the desert. You heard me read that in the passage. They ate the bread in the desert, their, their forefathers did, and, and when God provided the manna in the desert, they ate this bread in the desert, and they survive, and they, and they live. And so Jesus, uh, Jesus compares himself to this, and then he does another thing. So first he offends the crowd by saying, you're not really seeking me, you're only seeking what you think I'm going to give you. And then he offends all the religious people by saying, hey, uh, the bread that was in the desert that all of your forefathers ate, it was only temporary and they all died. It's, this is really, really offend, really, really offensive. Like it's, he's, it's like, whoa, 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 stop the presses. You have to remember in the Ark of the Covenant, there was a few things in the Ark of the Covenant. And one of the things that was in the Ark of the Covenant was a jar full of the manna, the bread, the reminder that God always provided in the, in the desert. And here's Jesus saying, that was incredible, but all those guys are dead now. now. I'm coming to do something way greater than the greatest thing that you all think was the greatest thing that ever happened. I'm, I'm going to now supersede that. I'm greater than all of the, all of the previous signs. So he's frying all of these surrogates as he's, as he's making this really bold claim. And he's basically saying, and he overtly says, if you believe in me, you'll be sustained, not for a day, not for a week, not for a month, forever. You never die. Now there's this phrase we use... Um, to describe food that doesn't really, isn't really good for us called empty carbs. You can eat empty carbs. I have a problem with empty carbs. Maybe you have a problem with empty carbs. I can eat a bag of chips like a Christmas tree going into a wood chipper. <laughs> Just no problem. You know how those trucks are going around town now and everyone's throwing their Christmas trees out and you'll see the guys feeding them in. It just, that's me with a bag of Doritos. No problem. But the thing is, it's empty carbs. You can, I can eat a whole bag of chips and I've done it. You know, I don't mind bragging. Um, and... Uh, <laughs> You know, every week. Uh, and the thing is, you know, an hour later, I could eat another bag of chips, and sometimes I do. <laughs> I, just, I wish I was kidding. But, 
It doesn't, it doesn't last. And Jesus is like, this is the problem with, this is the human condition. Um, you're going to keep filling yourself up, this insatiable hunger, uh, with these things that they, they just don't last. It doesn't mean they're bad and evil and terrible. And He's not trying to be a cosmic killjoy. Uh, by saying, like, you know, not, not, nothing in the world, don't enjoy good things, don't enjoy beautiful things, be aesthetic. You know, I have come to be the low-hanging gray sky that sucks all the joy from your soul. You know, that's not what Jesus is saying here. But he's, he's making a very overt distinction because he's trying to get our attention, and I, and I hope that he does. Because everything apart from him is, him is empty cars, essentially. In verse 35, he makes the, phrase, the statement. He says, I am the bread of life. If you come to me, you will not hunger. If you believe in me, you will not thirst. And that's the first of the seven I am statements. Right? I'm the bread, and I'm the life, and I'm the door, and I'm the shepherd, and I'm the way, and I'm the resurrection, and, and I'm the vine. We're going to get there all through John. He keeps on saying, I am, I am. And it reminds you, last week we, we dove into Exodus 3 when God says, I'm the great I am. And it's a series of verbs um, that mean I've always been and I'm being and I'm always going to be and I bring everything into being and Jesus is saying that here Now is that egocentric? Is Jesus an egomaniac? Making all these claims offending all these people saying no matter what you kind of try and fill your life up with It's you know, it's gonna be a bag of holes You know is announcing that the only way for your soul to be fulfilled by believing in him is that narrow He's being narrow. I mean, maybe you're here and you're not a Christian at all and you're exploring Christian faith and, you, and you're listening to me and you're thinking, this is pretty narrow. I mean, maybe there's lots of, other, lots of ways to get to God. Why, why should we believe this Jesus guy and why should Christians have the corner of the market on truth and say, well, he's the only way? I mean, it seems narrow. Is it narrow? Is it egocentric? Is it narrow? Well, if Jesus isn't God and Jesus did not rise from the grave, after he was crucified on a Roman cross in 33 AD. If he's not God, then this is absolutely egocentric and narrow. And if Jesus is not God, then nothing he said has any relevance at all, including this. But if he is God, and he did defeat death and rise from the grave in 33 AD, when the tomb was empty, and Rome and and Jerusalem got together an unlikely partnership and said, let's say that they stole the body. I mean, if, if he rose from dead, from death, which I believe that he did, and he is God, which I believe that he is, then this isn't narrow. It's actually liberating. Because by forcing us to sit in our smallness and marvel at his greatness here, he's actually inviting us into something very, very gracious. Because by saying, I'm the bread of life, I've come to give it to you, he's inviting us into this uh, freedom because by responding to the grace of his gospel, I've satisfied God for you. And by recognizing we've been given this great grace and then bending our knee and saying, your Lord, I'm not. If I'm willing to do these things and bend my knee, then I'm actually going to be free. And you've heard me say this many times before, if, if you're regular at Redeemer, that I'm actually free to enjoy every good thing without ever exalting it to the ultimate thing, essentially making it into empty carbs and then living for that thing and being in a perpetual state of chronic dissatisfaction in my soul. This is what he's inviting us into. The way to actually enjoy everything, every good thing from the Lord is not to live for that good thing and exalt it to the ultimate thing. So how do we acquire this bread? How do we, get, how do we, how do we obtain this bread, this bread of life? How do we 
How do we obtain this fulfillment, this, this rest for the soul that's constantly weary? What do we do? In verse 29, Jesus announces it. Because they say, well, what, what work should we do to do the works of God? And Jesus said, this is the work. Striking statement. What should we do to do the works of God? This is the work. Believe. That's not a very North American way to get things done. Because the North American way of getting things done is you don't, is you don't start with believing and, and stop. Because believing is a function of stopping and considering and marveling. And there's intellectual assent, but then there's also an emotional and kind of... Uh, uh, what's the word I'm looking for? You know, solical kind of contemplation. Believing has to do with stopping and reflecting and thinking. and You're not going out and doing activity. Jesus says, this is how you do it. Believe in the one who have sent. So we learn here that Christian maturity comes from marveling, unless you think the gospel is something you needed once and you don't need now, but we all need it. We'll get to that in a minute. So he says this. Jesus announces the good news of the gospel. It essentially sabotages any notion of performance-based acceptability before God. Because he explicitly said, if you want to find fulfillment, this is the work. Believe. And maybe you're hearing you're saying, that's really nice, but I've been a Christian for decades. So, I believe. Now what? Okay. Let's, let's reflect on this. The gospel, by its very definition, is news. And so, it's not good news that ceases to be good news that the longer you are a Christian becomes old news. It's always good. How is that possible? We'll take a quick jaunt. Romans 1.16, the Apostle Paul describes the gospel as power. He says, the Apostle Paul says, uh, I'm not ashamed of the gospel of Jesus Christ, for it is the power unto salvation. So how is news power? How is this bread of life power to fulfill us? If all I'm doing is believing and stopping and reflecting and thinking, how is that powerful? Because news changes your life. In fact, it changes your day-to-day. When you get news about things going on around you, it affects what you're thinking about and how you think about things and how you talk about things. And when you read things in your news feed and you have discussions about it, we have all kinds of discussions and debates in our house all the time about things we see in the news feed, things going on in the world. When you get news, that news does something to you. You have to do something with that news. If you get news from a doctor of something that's going on inside you, that news, that news has an impact and an effect on you. In fact, the news that we get about what's going on inside us from doctors, whether it's physical or mental, physical health, mental health issues, that news then translates out into a whole way of living. Right? You get news from the doctor and you begin to do different things and stop things and start things, and that's just what news does. The gospel is the good news that never ceases to be good. That as we rest in it and reflect in it and do the work, that Jesus said, which is of resting and believing and marveling that he has come. What has he given to us, church? What has he done for us, church? What are the implications of his resurrection? How do we stop in the midst of tragedy, pain, suffering, sorrow, and take a step back and reflect on the gospel and let it pull our eyes out of the nearsightedness of our suffering and think about the implications of eternity and then recalibrate how we go to school and recalibrate the way we think about life on campus or going to work or being with our family or our children. News changes us. News is power. And so the good news of what God has done for you in Christ is constantly rescuing you. It's constantly revitalizing you. It's constantly restoring you. It's constantly refilling you. It's the living bread. Jesus the great I am. 
the one who says he's the one who calls himself the ultimate fulfillment, he's constantly doing this filling, this refilling. That's why I said earlier, God is a total foodie. He keeps relating in so many ways throughout the scriptures to foods. And think about the Old Testament, feasts and fasts and seasons of food. Think about it. I mean, our whole life revolves around food. It's this prevalent theme in scripture because it's speaking to the ever-present constant state of our soul. Without food, your body shrivels. And without Jesus, your soul shrivels. I mean, it's a simple, this is the point that he's that he's getting at and that he's making. And so God makes this announcement that I've come to fill your hunger. You know, you have kids. Many of you guys have kids and your kids will eat something and then five minutes later they'll say, I'm hungry. And you're like, you just ate, right? Maybe they did just eat, but maybe they didn't. Maybe they filled up on the wrong stuff. How many of you guys have ever had kids where, uh, a situation with kids where you're eating food and, um, and you look over and they're like, they're not hungry, but their glass is empty. So they didn't drink enough during the day, so they sat down and they drank the whole thing and they filled their, their stomach with water and now they're not hungry for the food. Our soul is in a constant state as humans of we just have a proclivity to fill up on the wrong things and look for that satisfaction in the wrong ways. So we get this picture uh, of Jesus, uh, we've got this picture of Jesus coming and saying, I'm going to ultimately fulfill you in this ultimate way. And that's why it's no coincidence that the way in which Jesus says, how are we going to remember what he did? It's a meal. And there's no coincidence there. There's no coincidence there because think about uh, how, we, how humanity spiraled into the problem in the first place. Eating. So how did we, how did we get into this predicament of the soul? Well, they took and ate. And there was nothing mysterious about the forbidden fruit. There was nothing you know, glowing about the forbidden fruit. The Bible doesn't even describe the forbidden fruit because the fruit is not relevant. What's relevant about it is that it was a, it was a treasonous act against God saying, I will fill myself apart from you. You said this and life will be enjoyed with you as Lord, but I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to take and eat and I'll fill myself. So all, all, of, all of the human condition is an exercise in us trying to find ways of fulfilling fulfilling ourselves, these little mini-gods that can't really fill us up. And so if it was taking and eating that got us into the problem in the first place, it's no surprise, it's no coincidence that Jesus would redeem the very acts of our damnation and redeem them to make them the acts of to remember our redemption. And that's why every Sunday we take and eat. Jesus said, take and eat and remember me. Because taking and eating was how we got into this mess And taking and eating is how we're getting ourselves out. The worship of Christ. That's why we worship. It's why we gather. So uh, this is the the power of the image of Christ being the bread. I'll tell you, I'll tell you it's more powerful than we think. If we got here on a Sunday morning and the staff came up to me and they said, Paul, we've made a mistake uh, or, uh, you know, with a rental agreement and there's another group here at the community center. And your church has to leave in five minutes. I'll tell you what we would do. We wouldn't sing. And I wouldn't preach a sermon. If we only had five minutes to get out of here, we would eat and drink. You want to know why? Because the bread and the cup preach the sermon to you and to your soul every week. 
Because in the bread and in the cup, it's the le- it, it is the, not just the physical reminder with the ordinary bread and cup of what Christ did, but that there's the spiritual reality of his nourishing our souls. This is what he gave. This is, what, this is the power of the Lord's table, is that it's a constant reminder that if I don't eat and I don't drink, my body shrivels. And so we eat and we drink so that our souls don't shrivel, as, because in that is we do the work of God. When we eat and drink, we're doing the work of God, which is believing, stopping, resting. Notice that when you come to the Lord's table, your mouth is shut. What a gift that God gives us. So this is why Sunday morning is this gathering, this feast, this picture of this meal. If you're new to Christian faith or you're exploring Christian faith this morning, to see the fundamental difference between Christian faith and world religions is essentially that in world religions you have systems of salvation whereby you save yourself, whereas in Christianity we've got a Savior who saves us. And that's why, united to Christ, by grace and through faith, because of His perfect life and that He satisfied God for us because we could never do it, as we rest in that reality, that's why Christians do not fear death. We mourn death and we have sorrow over death, but we don't, we don't fear it and we don't grieve death like someone who does not know Jesus Christ grieves death. And I'll tell you why. It's because death and judgment day and standing before God is not something that we're afraid of because it's not an episode, it's not like an episode of the food channel where they say, let's taste and see if this is good enough to let you in my kitchen. Because Jesus' announcement was, I'm the bread. His announcement was not, I've come to teach you to be tremendous bakers of your own bread so that you can fulfill your own lives. That's not his message. He says, I'm the bread. Me. One, takes 100% of the responsibility for fulfillment and salvation. Jesus says that. And so, Judgment Day is not like an episode of Chopped. But the cultural conversation about God is that's exactly what it's like. We die, we stand before God, where there's fear and trepidation. Because God's going to say, okay, well, uh, you seem to look like a very faithful baker, but I'm just going to examine the bread of your life and see if this is good enough to let you in here. That's how most people think about Judgment Day. I need you to know that there is no good news if that's Judgment Day. But the good news for the ones who are united to Christ is he's the bread. The the Bible tells a very familiar passage in Psalm 34, verse 8. It says, taste and see that the Lord is good. But if you want to erase the gospel... Make it the Lord tastes to see if you're good. You're not good. Spoiler alert. That's why we need Jesus. He's the bread. He's the one. And we rest in him and we marvel at that. And you know, in that, he begins to break away all of the empty carbs that are you know, clogging the arteries of our soul. So that we can uh, uh, tr- not only truly enjoy uh, life, but there's a, there, there's a strength, strength in a nourishing when life is very hard and very dark and very sorrowful. That he is with us in this. And so, the picture of this meal, this is Jesus' vision for the church. Think about when you have, make plans with friends to go out for dinner. Or they're going to they're come over. Think about it. As that day approaches, you get more excited about it. We're going to get together. This is going to be great. I can't wait to hang out. It's going to be awesome. We're going to have food. Yeah, there's always food involved. Every time a friend comes to town, your family comes to town, you're like, what are we going to eat? Jim Gaffigan's one of my favorite comedians. He made like a whole career out of talking about eating. The guy's a genius because, let's face it, all of life revolves around eating. 
Right? Well, he, t- he talks about going on holidays. And what are holidays except for talking about where you're going to eat on the way to where you're going to eat before you come back to eat, right? Well, we should probably go and get something to eat before we go see this thing. And then when we get there, we should probably grab a snack. And then we're going to go over here and eat. And then we'll come back to the hotel and eat. I mean, eating and drinking is like the whole, it's like the whole human gig. That's what we're up to. And so Jesus comes and, he's, and he announces that he's, he's the bread of life, the one that, the one that fulfills us. Uh, so that all of our eating and drinking and celebrating, that's a picture of su- what Sunday morning is to be. That's this gathering right here. Right? We come and the, the gospel is sung and preached and it goes into our heart, uh, into our ears and into our hearts. And then we come to the Lord's table and we eat and it goes into our mouths and into our, and into our souls. And it's all about feeding and feasting and nourishing. So that when you go out on Monday morning into whatever it is that you're up to and dealing with, and a, a life may not... Uh, change. You know, there are times where God graciously uh, intervenes in situations and, and, and in a very physical, tangible way, situations and circumstances completely turn around. He has always done that. He can do that. He continues to do that. I mean, God does that. But, you know, there are times where situations do not change. They do not turn around. But yet in the midst of that, we're changing. We're turning around because he's the bread of life. This is the transcendent power of the gospel. It would be a very small gospel if everything that I had to preach to you um, was uh, somehow some sort of a recipe for Monday morning changing. Because then all of your eating and drinking and celebrating would be hinging on something working out. But I got news for you. Your eating and drinking and celebrating is hinging on the fact that you have a God who transcends all things, who nourishes you in all things, who is with you in tragic and hard things, who blesses you with good things, and in the end is restoring all things. This is the message of Christ. This is what he was uh, very intentionally speaking and saying. It's not just a picture of our Sunday morning coming and nourishing, but you know, that's what, as Christians, we're looking forward to all of eternity. The death and resurrection of Christ has material implications to it. We don't just become ethereal stardust and float around in the cosmos. That's not, that's not very exciting. Then you're not really you. You're just part of this, you know, kind of universal spiritual blob. That's, no, that's not the, that's not the picture of, of Christian faith. It's, it's, it's a very pointed picture of the restoration of all things. Do you like being a human? Do you like plant? Good, because God's restoring everything. Every good and beautiful thing is being restored, and every tragic and horrifying thing is going to be removed. I mean, that's the Christian hope. It's the end of the gospel. There's a prophecy, and I'm going to close with this. It's in Isaiah 25. I'm just going to read one, one verse in verse 6. But again, it gets back to this theme of this eating and drinking and celebrating the goodness of our God of everything that he's, that he's done for us. It says, The Lord of hosts will make for all peoples a feast of rich food and well-aged wine. Think about it. What, of, all of, the th- of all of the prophetic things, it's not, you know, and the Lord of hosts is going to make us all ethereal stardust or just float around in all of eternity doing nothing. No. The restoration here. Rich food. Well-aged wine. Come on, that's a prophecy I can get behind. You know, I mean, that sounds pretty good. And this is our God. This is the hope of the Christian gospel. This is the hope that lifts our heads in, in the sorrow, in the hard times, church. And Jesus said, Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes in me has eternal life. I am the living bread that came down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. Let's pray.